Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. You don't need me to tell you that Adam Kinzinger has been a very, very busy man lately. Not only has, uh, of course, his you know service on the January 6th committee, but he is a new dad. So first of all, let's start off right there. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger, congratulations, daddy. <laughs> hey, thanks. It's, uh, you know, great timing. He's uh, He's awesome, though. And I'll tell you, it's I had a buddy that once told me, he goes, look, when you have a kid, you know, you're going to pretend like you're totally in love with him, but it takes like a year to really connect. And for me, I, I love this dude immediately. So he's been awesome, even when he's screaming at my face. Well, that'll go on for a while and it will probably disrupt other, you know, things in your life. Uh, your, your, you know, your political life's been disrupted a little bit, but I'm guessing your sleep <laughs> patterns will be disrupted. Uh, your workout patterns will be disrupted. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, but I, I, as much as I complain though, man, my wife is the real hero. Cause you know, she has to get up at night and I just have to like sympathy patter, you know, but she has to actually uh, get up and do the uh, work. So yeah. good for her. Okay. Well, um, you can get up once in a while too, you know? Yeah, I know, but don't get, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's keep that gonna, on the DL. I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to get some, you're going to, you're going to hear about that. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of your, your baby, whose name is Christian. Correct. Yep, name's Christian. Yep. Okay, so he has already been dragged into American politics um, That's right. because you were asked about him in an appearance on CNN. Let's so let's start by playing you for yourself. This was you, Adam Kinzinger, <laughs> on CNN being asked kind of an interesting question. What will you tell Christian about Donald Trump? I'm going to tell him he was the worst president the United States of America ever had. He was a liar. He was a charlatan. And he was a man with a more fragile ego, ego than anybody I've ever met, which the irony of it is he walks around like the tough guy, but he's the one that gets more offended and wounded and sad than anybody I know. I'm also going to tell him that it was the moment that I hope America hit the bottom of its slide towards authoritarianism and the moment we woke up. Uh, I hope he's proud of what I've done. I'm, I'm confident he will be because, you know, short of uh, this thing really going off the rails, this thing being our country in this experiment, I think we're going to look back and say, wow, that was a moment we might have flown too close to the sun and we can never do that again. It's slide towards authoritarianism and the moment we woke up. Uh, I hope he's proud of what I've done. I'm, I'm confident he will be because, you know, short of uh, this thing really going off the rails, this thing being our country in this experiment, I think we're going to look back and say, Wow, that was a moment we might have flown too close to the sun, and we can never do that again. Hmm. <laughs> so that sounds like you you thought about that. That you thought about the answer to that question. You know, I've thought about the answer to that question for a long time, and you know, it, it's it's different when you when you have a kid, as those parents know, where everything goes from speaking of you know our kids theoretically, which I have for eleven years, talking about you know the next generation. And it takes a whole new meaning. And and so I've thought obviously quite a bit about, you know, what's he it, when he's in school and they're learning the history of this moment, you know, am I going to be written down? That's not why I'm doing it, but he's probably going to read my name. And if so, what's his feelings going to be? And, and, and the, you know, the question about what are you going to tell him about the former president? I mean, look, we can, we can parse certain things and you get a lot of Republicans that do this. Well, I liked his policies or I liked the tax reform. Yeah, that's great. I, I liked some of those policies too. I, I can't think of a single foreign policy thing he did right. But, you know, when you're looking at the actual destruction potentially of democracy, uh, when you're looking at the the system that we have relied on to be able to 
work out differences among ourselves falling apart and accelerated or caused by this guy. I don't think there's any redeeming value in his presidency. I don't think there's any redeeming value in his four years if we're going to spend the next 10 years or 20 years, uh, God forbid, trying to come back from the abyss that he put us in. And he didn't go away. He hasn't just walked away and now we have to deal with the repercussions. He continues to try to abuse people and drive them with disinformation, with lies, with actual kind of conspiracy and that's a fight we have to continue to embark. So I, I think there is nothing of his legacy, as I've come to think about it, that redeems anything he's done, and particularly the last year. Well, you know, I, I think one of the interesting questions to uh, to ask is why you and Liz Cheney as opposed to everyone else. And, and I think that in part it's because of the way you just answered that, which is that you actually do think of legacy. You do think in terms of how we look back on this. Because I think a lot of people just muddle through the news cycle, muddle through the next election cycle, think the most important thing is to remain relevant. And they don't really think about, OK, what what is at stake here when, when I'm looking back on my life 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now? What is it going to be looking like? I, I once assumed that that people had that gene that they would would think about their legacy. But I'm really struck in the last few years of how few people answer the question that way. I got to tell you, I am too. And I've said before, you know, I, I think the thing that's the biggest disappointment to me is that people that I thought would have red lines they'd never cross don't. And I, yeah. I think it's less even about that as it is, you know, when you're about to be excommunicated from a group or when you're about to be, you know, you're going to lose your social circle or whatever that is. And, or, or, you know, your ego requires you to have the title of congressman or whatever that title is. That unfortunately is more powerful. It's the bias of, I don't know, some, somebody smarter than me is going to correct this, but it's like the bias of certain circum of current circumstances where you think that whatever's happening now will always be the case. Right. Well, mm -hmm. there's going to be a moment we look back and realize what Donald Trump was, those that, you know, don't now realize it. And I got to tell you, man, if I was, if I was playing the role of many of my other colleagues, that to me would be embarrassing when Christian goes to school and learns about. And I agree with you. I thought people thought about legacy. One of the things I did when I got back from Iraq just before I announced my candidacy is I repeated – I said this a few times in a speech, but I reminded myself over and over. I'm willing to take a career-ending vote uh, if it means it's the right thing for the country. And I, at the time, I thought maybe it would be like social security or something difficult. But uh, that has stuck with me, and, and I'm glad it did. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's one thing to say. It's another thing to do. And yeah. I think this is one of the things about, you know, in, in general about courage is you really don't know until you're actually faced with the choice. OK, so I want to back into a couple of things, including the disastrous uh, RNC censure, <laughs> uh, which then the way that that is playing out is truly epic. Uh, but but along these same lines, uh, the decisions that people make, uh, I want to play a little bit from Hugh Hewitt's radio show on, on Monday. Now, Chris Christie, who is been upping his game. Uh, I want to get your comments on that. Chris Christie is on with Hugh Hewitt and comes out pretty strongly about uh, the, you know, the former president's role on January 6th. Uh, but, but I want to at least initially focus on Hugh Hewitt's response. So let's play that. They can see that we're moving towards Republican majorities in the House and Senate uh, without something, you know, cataclysmic happening. And that's what they're attempting to cause. And so 
That's why they do it. And you know it. And so do I. I do. And I, I never talk about January 6th because I like my audience. I don't want them to turn me off. And they're bored. They do not like it. It is illegitimate. Nancy Pelosi quashed the minority. Okay. So you, you had, I don't talk about it because it's because my audience doesn't want it and they're bored. Now, you know, yeah. in, in many ways, that's okay. You know, fair enough. That's the reality of conservative media. I'm a former talk show host. I know that Joe Walsh has been on. He understands what that is, is that at a certain point, you have to push back against the audience. But Hugh Hewitt, who has a nationally syndicated show, acknowledging that, yeah, you know what? This may be an existential threat to democracy. He doesn't say that. But but I don't want to say things that take my audience out of their safe space. Very revealing moment, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it is. And it, it's there's a couple things that really stand out to me on that. One is, yes, you know, admitting intentionally or unintentionally that his goal is to keep that audience. But also this idea of being bored. You know, they're bored with January 6th. And I, yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, it's a problem we're facing is just people are bored and, and every outrage is just, you know, another outrage. But – when something big happens, like, for instance, the former president puts out a statement admitting that he was trying to do a coup, that's worth addressing. And secondarily, it's probably the same audience that isn't bored about talking about the summer riots six months even earlier than that. Um, boredom is basically like, I don't want to accept or talk about the reality of what happened. You know, look, the riots in the summer, you can condemn. What happened on January 6th may have in totality been less violent, maybe, but it was a much, much bigger and more existential threat to the future of this country. Any any city can take a riot. Any city can take a punch in the face. When you do that to the capital of the United States, it's huge. And so somebody like Hugh Hewitt, you know, has got to come to, you know, his own personal piece about his job is simply an entertainer to make money and nothing else. And that's fine. If he wants to be that, that's fine in America. I just think that that's something that's going to be hard to look at yourself in the mirror, uh, you know, as time goes by. Okay. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Um, your reaction, the Republican National Committee gets together. They have all of these things to talk about, this huge agenda, and everything is completely <laughs> erased because they decide that they are going to spend all of their political capital on going after you, Adam Kinzinger, and Liz Cheney, and uh, passing a resolution of censure against you for investigating legitimate political discourse. Your thoughts? Yeah, what, I mean— What was it, your reaction when you heard they were going to— purge you again, censure you again. Yeah. I mean, this is about a baker's dozen times, you know, <laughs> that some, some GOP group has done this to me. You know, I think the only reason I care is because it's, it's more of a sad thing about what's going on with the party and the country. I don't care personally. I think it's ironic that, you know, that happened literally as I was uh, doing military Friday, Saturday, and Sunday doing my, my duty in the military. Uh, it, I think it just showed quite a difference between that and then accepting and not even addressing Donald Trump's statement or even, you know, Vice President Pence's that I didn't have a right to overthrow this election. And and I think the bigger thing about it, it's, it's like on, an on steroids version of what happened in, I guess it was for the platform for 2020, yeah. where it was whatever Donald Trump wants, that's what we're for. When, you know, they basically shut down the whole primary system in these states, um, they're now talking about pulling out or they did pulling out of the presidential debate commission. Mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. there's no leadership in the RNC and the people that were there, 
whether it's on the committee or by the larger vote, that knew that this was dumb, didn't agree with it, but didn't have the courage to stand out is a microcosm of what's happening on a broader scale in this country, which is I'm going to stay quiet so I don't get the gander of the mob up because if I do that, you know, they're all going to target me, but then silence is complicity. And so I don't care. I, I know Liz didn't lose an ounce of sleep about it. And I think I actually believe this may be a, a pretty big backfire on the RNC, whether it's the beginning or the end, I don't know, but it's okay. certainly well, backfiring. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. I mean, first of all, I mean, it was a, I mean, talk about an own goal, the the just incredibly inept drafting of this. If, 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 in fact, that's too kind because I don't buy the fact it was ineptly drafted. I think they're buying into the revisionism on January 6th. Agree, fully that, agree. That it was not a riot that somehow we're going to um, create this alternative story that it was really, uh, you know, patriots protesting this terrible election, et, et cetera. But it has blown up. So give me your sense of the backlash, uh, because, look, um, we've had these experiences before, like this is the turning point. Well, this is going to be the no shame moment um, and have been disappointed. But this did seem to generate quite a blowback. Uh, what, what are you seeing? What do you think? I think it did. I, I don't know if this is the turning point, you know, whether we'll ever have a turning point, whether this is it or whether this is one of kind of building blocks of people finally waking up. But I I, I think this had this had massive blowback. And I think the thing even worse, or you know, frankly better for those of us that are that are out trying to defend to defend this country and defend democracy, but Every member of Congress, every member of the Senate, <clears throat> I believe every member of the State House, all the way up and down, that calls themselves a Republican should be forced to answer no other question but this one. Do you think the RNC, censuring Kinzinger and Cheney, was right or wrong? It's time to take sides. We can yeah. no longer. There are too many people, including good friends of mine, that believe in everything I'm saying and doing, but they put their head in the sand because God forbid somebody worse replaces them. It's kind of a chicken way of, of staying out of it. Everybody needs to be on record now, and it's time to take sides. And if we have to have that fight in the party, let's have that fight. But I think even more than any kind of backlash, I mean, you see Rubio on the one hand this, on the other hand that, you know, and and this is just some crusade against the Democrats. Not really. Not really. The crusade against the Democrats and and the quote unquote rhinos was January 6th. And uh, this is an attempt to get answers. So everybody has to go on the record now. Well, it does seem that people are choosing sides on all of this and being forced uh, to take sides. And there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, flop sweat awkwardness on the Sunday shows, including uh, Marco Rubio. Uh, what did you think of Kevin McCarthy's response? Yeah, I think his response was something like, I mean, it made no sense. It was something like, well, Chain Kinzinger's not running again and Cheney's going to have a hard time coming back. Look, I, I've been clear about my thoughts of Kevin McCarthy. He is not – even if he does somehow become speaker, uh, he's going to have to have a good cell phone plan because he will be calling Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene every day asking her what he can – what he can't do. I mean, my goodness, I, you know, having the title of speaker, but then really being, you know, subservient to a sophomore in Congress who's crazy and a number of them, why would you even want that? But yeah. that guy, you know, has even because he did it prior to other members starting to come out and defend Liz and I, he, he got out there real quick and said, basically, I'm all in with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you know what? The Republicans may win the majority, uh, but that is going to be, I think, uh, when he is hostage to Marjorie Taylor Greene, probably do more damage to the Republican Party than even anything in the next year. 
It is sort of the monkey monkey's paw speakership totally. where you you know you get what you wanted but wow it didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to be well yep. you know on this on the, on the blowback to this because there does seem to be blowback and criticism from somewhat unexpected people i thought you know congressman young from from alaska mm-hmm. who's not a never trumper uh, issues a statement senator cornyn from uh, texas uh, seemed to be distancing himself from all of this and i guess what struck me about this is like why did they choose to have this fight because okay so they'd taken you out earlier um they've already purged liz cheney why do this uh, you know because in, in terms in terms of basic blocking and tackling politics uh, they're in a good position in the midterms they could be talking about inflation they could be talking about afghanistan they could be talking about all sorts of things that they want to talk about instead they decided to go back and rip the scab off <laughs> this wound now you know what i've said about this the only interpretation i can make other than the fact that they're doing trump's bidding and that Trump is totally fixated on revenge, which is the easiest, obvious answer. But it's also that there's real anxiety about what you guys are doing on this January 6th committee. And this is a reflection of that. You're moving very, very quickly, and they feel the need to discredit the committee, and they feel the need to discredit you guys because you provide a certain bipartisan cover for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I 100% agree. I yeah. think I think it's two things. So on the on the more kind of like animal instinct level, yeah. you know, have you ever argued with somebody and they just start basically trembling and they turn red and they can't make coherent thoughts, right. but they mm-hmm. want to, you know, lash out? That's what this is. Uh, on the one hand, it's the, the angry people that are just so mad and that spreads. I think on the deeper level, you are 100% right, which is – we, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we know now that's even out there in the public sphere that would never have come out uh, without this committee. Liz and I being on this committee takes it from a quote unquote partisan committee to a nonpartisan committee. History is going to look and say, probably never in the past, but I feel pretty certain never again in the future. Will there be a select committee that works so well together that is pulling in the same direction? I mean, imagine if if uh, Kevin had not pulled the members from the committee and he'd have replaced, you know, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks with other members. You'd be having, you know, open warfare and you could easily say, well, that's just partisan using that kind of thing. Instead, you have a committee that is working together to get answers. It is a huge threat to them. And instead of just saying, let's get on board, get answers, have full accountability and move on, it's try to. It's easy to try to discredit Liz and I. We're two people, uh, but we're not very easily, you know, we're not easily bowed. We're not easily going to walk away. We've invested a lot in this and we're, we're going to be damn sure to get the answers. So do you think Kevin McCarthy regrets his decision? Do you think he, he regrets? To. You think so? Why? He has to. So Kevin's the one. I mean, obviously – he empowered John Katko to do a fair yeah. commission. Mm-hmm. Katko got that fair commission, and then he turned against it. Had had this been in the quote-unquote fair commission thing, this would all be behind the scenes. You would end up with a report similar to the 9-11 report, and you, know, you wouldn't have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. Uh, instead, he probably had a conversation with Donald Trump, who was whining about the commission, and so he he tanked it, and, and so did I think Mitch McConnell. Um, I absolutely think he's regretting it. I think it was one of the worst in terms of just raw strategy decisions that he's made because he didn't believe that you know Liz Cheney 
would jump onto the committee. And he ultimately, after he pulled his members, did not believe that I would take an appointment to occupy the Republican seats. But there are so many things way more important than just keeping a job in Congress like the future of the country. Well, that's what's also interesting is the other decision he made, of course, was to go along with the uh, with the purge of Liz Cheney from leadership. Um, oh, man. You know, an alternative reality would have been, oh, you know, you keep your critics close. You, you don't you don't do that. You, you, you move on. Uh, instead, he figured, you know, let's get rid of, you know, we'll we'll get rid of Liz Cheney and we will excommunicate Adam Kinzinger. And then we never will hear about them again. We don't have to worry about them again. And the reality is that and I think this is objectively true. Liz Cheney is more influential than ever. You are yeah. higher profile than ever. And this is in many ways Kevin McCarthy's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember so sitting in. Take you back to the day that Liz was finally deposed, because remember, they had that first mm -hmm. time overwhelmingly people voted to keep her. And then a couple of weeks later, because she said something, whatever, they do it again. And, you know, Kevin jumps at calling for a voice vote, no recorded vote. It's all this stuff. We're all kind of taken off guard. And anyway, it's done. Liz is out. And the most inspired, the greatest thing to me was watching because I then got up and left. I'm like, screw this. Mm -hmm. I'm not staying. And I ended up following Liz out. She walked out of that room, went and talked to the press. And that's when she gave her statement, basically, to paraphrase, like, I'll do anything to ensure Donald Trump uh, does not you know, retake over the Republican Party. And watching that, I, I remember at that moment just thinking, you know, Kevin McCarthy just empowered his greatest enemy mm -hmm. because exactly. right. he thought she would go away. And I got to tell you, she ain't going away. And uh, and instead, he looks like a feckless, weak, tired man that is doing the bidding of whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks is going to raise her money that day. I want to come back to the committee in a moment. But your thoughts on Mike Pence's uh, speech on Friday where he uttered the words President Trump was wrong? I think on the broad scope, it's historic just that a, you have a vice president saying that about a president. Um, I, I think it goes to show you know, how broken – uh, Donald Trump was as a president. I think it's a big deal that he did it. The mm -hmm. question is, what does he do now? You know, it, it's obvious that Mike Pence wants to run for president. If he basically goes from that speech into, hey, like here's where I actually think he has a great lane is, and he should have taken it significantly earlier. But if he says, look, guys, you like Donald Trump's policies? I was the guy helping Donald Trump's policies. I was the guy giving him ideas. But what I'm not the guy that's going to do is overthrow democracy. We're going to win by going and winning in the war, the war of ideas. Um, I think he has a lane to win over some Trumpers, to win over the never Trumpers, and to put that together. So if he goes out and does that and takes that approach, you know, I don't think he'll be president. But I think that, that'll be a legacy building thing for him. I, I think history will judge him well. If now the next interview is, you know, the kind of Nikki Haley, I would absolutely support him if he was the candidate again. Well, then he's just throwing all that out of the water. But there is no doubt that was a historic moment. And I've even come around on people to say, you know, it can be tempting for me to say, well, where were you six months ago? You know, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now I'm just of the belief we need as many allies as we can because we're no longer just fighting for our egos. We're fighting for the future of this whole country. 
Well, also, I, I, I don't really see much of a lane for Mike Pence, but I do think that very significantly he can create this environment again for people to speak out, to take sides, uh, permission structure for people yes. to do this. And also, you know, you said everybody's got to you know be asked about this. So you probably heard this, you know, the uh, governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, you know, big, tough guy, uh, profiling courage, asked the question. Who's right, Trump or Pence? I, I mean, I really love this. Is in, now this is an easy question to ask, and Ron DeSantis refuses to answer the question. It was really kind of remarkable. Um, Ron DeSantis asked, "Who do you agree?" I mean, th th it's it's going to play out over a while uh, now, where people are saying choose sides. And here, let me just read this. So um, Mark Caputo put this out. Who's right, uh, Pence or Trump, when it comes to the certification of the presidential election on January 6, 2021? DeSantis won't say. I'm not. I, DeSantis told reporters, stopping himself from answering, of answering the question as he changed the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I mean, you're going to see a lot of that. You're going to see a lot of that. And you're going to see people that somehow think in one audience they can say one thing, another audience they can say another. Not you know, Ron, Ron DeSantis to some extent tries to play the I'm the MAGA, I'm more MAGA than MAGA. And then I also can distance myself from Trump. Yeah, if you are in elected office or running for elected office, I got to tell you, if you're listening to this, you need to pick a side because you will never be able to walk the middle of that line. This isn't, you know, yeah, I agreed with the tax cut, but maybe not the SALT deductions, right? This isn't that. This is, no. do you believe that Donald Trump uh, should have overturned the election or was Mike Pence right? And you're going to be asked that until you give a satisfactory answer. You're going to be yeah. asked it. So just may as well do it now. Yeah, they're they're all you know walking that tightrope. But in order for there to be a lane, they have to basically say, OK, I'm going to go one way or another. And it's it's going to have to be I, I agree with Mike Pence, which, by the way, sounds easier than saying I agree with Nancy Pelosi. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, true. so so that's that why true. this is significant for for Republicans to say, I agree with former Vice President Mike Pence on this issue. And it's going to be interesting to see. How many Republicans take that off ramp? I've used this phrase too many times. I know this, but, you know, this is a party that has had many, many off ramps. Pence may have given them just one more off ramp if they want to take it, which is not clear to me that they want to take that. Though. Yeah, he, he may have. And, and, and I think, you know, any message I would give to anybody that's like, OK, I got to pick a side and, and, and they know in their soul it's burning, you know, because they. They want to tell the truth, but they're so worried. Let me walk you briefly through the steps. You go out, you say that controversial thing to your base. You know, Donald Trump lost the election. Yeah. You're going to get a slew of text messages. You're going to have all your county party leaders call you. You're going to deal with that blowback. But the one thing that you cannot put a price on is how much at peace and how much relief you finally feel because you said the truth. And that, I'll tell you, that outweighs all the texts you get, all the friends that don't call you anymore. That ability to tell the truth outweighs that. And uh, I would encourage anybody to try it. Telling the truth can be like a drug when you've been pent up for so long trying to walk a tightrope. So speaking of being a truth teller, you had some things to say about Josh Hawley the other day. Oh, yeah, that guy. What, 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 what triggered you on Josh Hawley? So, you know, look, 
here's the thing that Josh Hawley doesn't get enough credit for is he is the reason that there was the whole vote on January 6th. Mm -hmm. Initially, there were a bunch of House members that were going to vote against certification, but you have to have a senator too. That's a great Um, point. And and McConnell had that call that Josh Hawley didn't come on to uh, where he was like, hey, listen, let the House do what they're going to do. Nobody object to these elections. And even freaking, you know, big face Ted Cruz wasn't going to do anything about it. And then Josh Hawley, because he he's a charlatan who wants to be famous and kind of the new whatever. He's the one that said, I am going to object. Maybe it was Arizona or Pennsylvania, whichever it was first. And then you saw the dam open for the senators. That's why we went into the whole thing on January 6th versus just somebody yelling from the House floor. And and then I see the thing that set me off is then I'm, I'm looking at his comment about Ukraine and he is parroting – the guy probably doesn't know anything about foreign policy. If he does, he doesn't care because he's now parroting Tucker Carlson. And he's doing that because he wants to get on Tucker Carlson. He he wants to usurp Ted Cruz as the crazy guy thing and the most MAGA. And I just looked at it and I go, that guy is the reason that January 6th happened. And I personally, and I, I try not to take personal shots. Sometimes I go over the line, but I personally detest the man because of that. That is a great point, that when we think about what happened on January 6th, there would not have even been that question mark over if Josh Hawley had not filed that objection. So let's go back to the the, the committee's work. One of the reasons why I think that they decided they're going to go back and repurge you and Liz Cheney is because your committee, at least from the outside, appears to be moving um, at ramming speed. A story in the New York Times, how you are using very aggressive tactics, the kind of tactics that at one time had been reserved to uh, prosecutors going after the mob. You're talking about hundreds of, of witnesses, thousands of documents, 700 documents from the White House. So you're on the committee. What 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 do we have to look forward to? When when does this go prime time, Adam Kinzinger? Yeah, I you know I, in terms of when it goes prime time, I think there's been a bit of a kind of understanding now that maybe well, let's do, we need to do this when all the information's together. Initially, we were talking about January hearings and then spring. I mean, this is the chairman that'll announce these things. I think what we're looking at is when we have the reports together, at least preliminarily, or we have the information. That's the time to roll out the hearings with the report because the hearings purposes are less about we need to get this information. That's all being done every day in depositions and voluntary interviews, et cetera. Um, This is about convincing the American people of the truth. I think there's going to be when we can place this all out and paint the picture. You know, people have a short attention span. I have a short attention span. So we can't have necessarily months and months of telling the story. We've got to put this in, in concise moments. And I think it'll be extremely compelling. Everything from what was being done on the financial side, who was paying for this, people, you know, writing fundraising appeals without even caring about what truth is, uh, you know, maybe potentially foreign involvement. I'm not making that accusation now, but we're certainly looking into it. Um, And then what was the president doing? You know, what did the president know? Did he actually have conversations with people and know what the plan was on January 6th? We have information I can't talk about, but this is all going to be important for the American people to know. And, and, you know, a guy that's been a, a, 
uh, person on this podcast, you know, Denver Riggleman, former mm-hmm. member of Congress, has done great work on the committee in terms of talking about when we talk about social media and what people are putting on there, that's all in the public sphere. Um, you know, those are important things to know, especially when you're talking to folks. So, uh, yes, it has been an extensive, extensive investigation. I think we know more uh, than what DOJ has even been able to find out. And, uh, and and we'll show the American people what that is. And if we have, you know, evidence of criminal action or anything, you know, DOJ would certainly hopefully like to hear from that. This is kind of a, a difficult slash awkward question, but I was talking about this with Scott McFarlane last week from from CBS. And, you know, he, he made the point that often congressional committees are, well, they're, they're sort of hot messes. Uh, yes. But but the, this committee really seems to have its act together and is rising to the moment. You're you're on the inside of this committee. What can you tell me? You know, you've you've seen the way Congress often bungles things. What, what is the secret ingredient in this committee? Who's made the decision to to go about it this way? Because it, it, it does it does have a different feel. It really you know, does. You know what I'm asking? I'm, yeah, I'm, I totally do. No, no. Totally. So just take like the Benghazi hearings and compare them to this. Yeah. You know, both are select committees. Both had subpoena power. Here's the difference, I think, in this one. First off, uh, Chairman Thompson and Vice Chair, he named her Vice Chair, by the way, Liz yeah. Cheney, get along really well. Uh, I think history will adjudicate Liz's role extremely well. Mm. She is a dogged go-getter. Um, you know, I work hard on this committee. She puts me to shame in terms of going out, getting the information, putting the pieces together. We have avoided, you know, partisan jabs at each other. If we see, if Liz or I see, for instance, you know, the EPS, the, the whole EPS okay, conspiracy, you which- explain what that was for people. This was, this was something that was being floated by uh, the MAGA world that this guy named Epps was really a undercover federal agent as opposed to a, a MAGA rioter. That's right. Yep. And uh, even Ted Cruz, you know, and, and mainstream this with Massey and everybody else. Um, we are able to see that coming up and address that with the committee to put out the proper information because we look at different news sources than they do or we hear from different people. Um but the bottom line is, Charlie, we're all pulling in the same direction. We all have the same concern, which is what happened on January 6th. Do we have our own internal disagreements a little sometimes? Yeah, we do. Um, we haven't thrown things at each other yet, but we have avoided the partisan battles that I think ruin so much work that Congress does. I mean, partisanship is fine. It's important. But uh, we've recognized in this case it is very important for us to pull in a nonpartisan direction. It's been – I really think books are, are going to be written not just about the content but about this process and how this went down. So I guess the basic question is, is there any reason for those of us on the outside to hope that eventually the people at the top will be held accountable for this, that something will come of this, that, that at the end of the day – we have something more than just a report that there will be actual accountability and consequences. I think so. Now, in terms of when it's accountability and does that mean jail? Does that mean criminal lawsuits? Yeah. Yeah. That that's up to DOJ again, because, you know, we obviously are very careful to stress that that's not our intended role, but we'll put that information out there. But I'm going to tell you, I, I, you know, five years in politics, even 10 years in politics isn't that long ago. 10 years ago was, you know, Mitt Romney losing the election 2012. Yeah. Five years ago was crap. It was, it was Trump. It was 2017. <laughs> you know, time goes by fast. 
I think in five or 10 years, the history books are going to accurately reflect what happened. And we're in a really crappy time right now for lies and disinformation. But at least on January 6th, the committee, I think, will discredit these people that have been defending what happened on January 6th. I think it could potentially lead to criminal charges of some people regarding January 6th. But most importantly, it's Congress, you know, the American people through Congress putting their stamp on something that says this will never happen again. Like this is a serious threat. I've, I've recommended so many people after hearing her on your podcast, uh, How Civil Wars Start by Barbara yeah. F. Walter. Uh, that book is eye-opening and we're at that moment where short if we don't have open accountability that we all agree is necessary – this ain't going to end well. It really isn't. And I. so, yes, I think there'll be good work done. I certainly pray for it. Do you think that the Department of Justice is waiting on you, to, waiting to see what you put together, waiting to see whether there are uh, more referrals? Uh, because, of course, there's been a lot of frustration about the fact that Merrick Garland has not been more aggressive in going up the ladder. Oh, I'm frustrated, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm frustrated. Uh I mean, I hope I, I guess I hope they're waiting for us. I, I don't know. I, I hope they're I hope they're moving, maybe building big cases in front of the grand jury uh, that we're unaware of. But I, I think it's bear, it bears noting after everybody was arrested after January 6th, they all were, you know, Mia culpas. They all were embarrassed and sad. And then something happened. The right wing media ecosystem put them all in bubble wrap, lionized them, made them heroes began to give them uh, excuses for what they did, like January 6th was actually just a bunch of tourists or patriots. Right. And so what happened is they quit cooperating with DOJ. So it's harder to climb a ladder when people aren't cooperating. Well, I mean, it's only been a week and a half since Donald Trump speaks down in Texas and dangles pardons for yeah. the people who were engaged in this. Now, is, is there any other way to interpret that other than Donald Trump trying to obstruct these investigations by encouraging people not to cooperate, saying, hey, listen, if you keep your mouth shut, if you stay loyal, I become president again. And it's a get out of jail free card for everybody that tried to overthrow the government. Yeah, I don't think there's any other way to interpret it. And and I also think it's interesting, you know, logic doesn't make sense to some people or doesn't compute with some people. But Donald Trump is promising pardons for January 6th. I've, I thought it was Antifa that did January 6th. So <laughs> is he trying to pardon Antifa? Well, obviously not. So now I think we can put to bed the conspiracies that it was the FBI or Antifa at least. But unfortunately, you'll still see Tucker Carlson spread some of those. You'll still see that cognitive dissidence of two different competing theories all being true at the same time. Uh, but Donald Trump, I'm going to tell you if, you, if you step away from it, and I think look at the 50,000-foot view, in the last few months, Donald Trump has lost his mind even more than he had in the past, which I didn't know was possible. And I think all that shows is when you're catching flack, you're over the target. So in, in terms of where this is going, you know, we, we talked about whether there was a lane for Mike Pence or what uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is thinking. My sense over the last uh, several days, particularly after the blow up in the RNC, is, is that there are Republicans who are frustrated that they cannot move on, that if they actually had a lane to go with, say, Trumpism without Trump, they would grab it. What, what do yeah. you think? I don't know what Trumpism is, by the way, but, you know. Yeah, I think it's probably true. It's actually... I kind of worry that the lesson that will be taken out of this moment is that Donald Trump was a bad guy yeah. and not that populism is bad. 
Donald Trump used populism. Populism and lies is the bad thing. And so if somebody comes up, you know, trained in the Donald Trump ways and wins the Republican nomination and maybe the presidency, uh, that'll be the wrong lesson. What I'm hoping is that in, and it'll probably be through the primary process for 2024, the truth comes out, which is like, we have lost our soul. We've lost our way. And that there are a lot of people, I think, you know, 30-some percent, which is significant, of people in the Republican Party probably would support a sane candidate that wanted to just get back to going you know, with ideas. The question is, will that number eventually overtake or not? I don't know, but I certainly know that the track we're on right now leads to a party that will fall apart and fail, or unfortunately, a party that'll be the one that gets rid of democracy in this country. Yeah, I, I've, I've moved past will the Republican Party fall apart and fail to will the Republican Party pull the rest of the country and right. all of our institutions and our norms down with it? Because it's not just going to disappear. It's not going to return to sanity anytime soon. And the damage they can do in the meantime is, as, as you know, rather it's profound. Massive. Yeah, All right. So uh, next time I have you on, I want to talk about the whole problem of coalition politics. And oh. I know that you have been trying to get, you know, the two parties to say, listen, if this is an existential crisis, could we behave like it? Um, that's that's turning out to be that's that's complicated, isn't it? It really I mean, it's, is. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. I call it the uneasy alliance. You know, right. it's it's. Look, if if just think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are actually at food and shelter right now. Right. When we get to uh, you know the very top, what is it, self actualization? Then we can debate all these issues. We can still debate the issues, but right now we're just trying to get food and shelter, and that means that you know lefties and righties who don't like each other are going to have to have an uneasy alliance, and unfortunately, it's tough. It is very tough. Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much for joining me. And again, congratulations of the badge of honor from the the RNC's <laughs> worst drafted censure resolution ever. <laughs> Adam, thanks for coming back on the podcast. You bet. Anytime. Take care. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>